Hey, if, if so James chapter uh, 5 this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. We're going to jump right into to this passage in, in just a moment. Um, I'm going to talk about what we've been walking through uh, through this series in James and looking at what we're calling uncivilized, which is really taking a step back and asking the question, is the faith that I've embraced the faith that God intended for me? Or is there something more that God has for me that I haven't yet embraced yet? And so this morning, we're going to take a look at this concept called generosity in focusing in on money. We all know that we love the topic of money. In fact, two topics that cause people to squirm in church more than anything is money and sex. So you're, you're lucky because yesterday, the, the marriage conference, we talked about sex. We won't talk about that today, but we will talk about money because James goes really, in fact, this is probably one of the harshest rebukes in all of the book of James, and it has to do with money. And so, as I've mentioned through this series, uh, if you choose to be offended today, please don't be offended by me. Be offended by James, because he's the one that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the words that we're going to try to digest today. So, let me read verses uh, 1 through 6 of James 5. So, James says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers have, uh, who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fatted yourself in the day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Wow. Is that really in the Bible? Yeah, it really is. And what is James saying? Well, we're going to take some time to kind of unpack that. But James starts with this phrase that we translate in English. And so he says, now listen. And now listen really is a very kind of strong warning. He's trying to get people's attention. He's saying, listen, I'm about to give you a severe rebuke about your life. And, and so we understand the context of what James is talking about, that, that it's easy for us when we read a passage of Scripture to always interpret it in light of somebody else's experience. So when you have these six verses that James is just hammering on, it's really easy to say this to yourself. Well, I'm not rich. So that applies to other people. That applies to anybody who makes more money than I do, anybody that has more money than I do. So it's like, I can listen to what James is saying, and I can be fine with myself because he's talking to the people who have more money than I do. Now, before we go down that road, let's remember who James is really talking to. Let's looked up some statistics by the World Bank that was put out recently to estimate kind of the amount of money that people make every year in the world. So... If you make more than, in your household, more than $50,000 a year, some of you are thinking, wow, I wish I could make $50,000. Some of you think, I made $50,000 when I was five years old. But if you make more than $50,000 a year, you are more wealthy than 84% of the world's population. Or excuse me, 99% of the world's population. You're in the, you're in the 1%. But if you make $10,000 or more a year, and now you're like, everyone's like, yeah, that's me, that's me, then you're actually more wealthy than 84% of the world's population. Isn't that crazy? $10,000 is far below the, what we call the poverty line in the United States, yet that is still more than 84% of the world's population makes in a year. Can you imagine? So when James says, you rich, who's he talking to? Raise your hand. He's talking to all of us. That's who he's referring to. That's who is the wealthy in our world today, and that's who James is talking to today. And so in this passage, let's walk through this together. First thing I want to talk about is what does your wealth do to you? 
When you have resource, what does it do to you? James is talking about the outcome of what resource and money does to us if we allow it to. The first thing, look at verse 1, is that it causes misery. He says, now, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Most of us, when we think of money, we don't think of misery, do, do we? We think of, oh, my life would be so much easier and so much better and so much more comfortable if I had more money. Anybody ever thought that? That's the opposite of what James is saying. He says, the more money you have, the more miserable you are, which is so counter to way, the way that we think. But if you, if you start to just think about what does wealth do, what does it do to us if we allow it to? It does something in us. It causes our life to unravel in ways that we never anticipated. Anybody ever dreamt of winning the lottery? Yeah, and we always think, if I won the lottery, and then what do we do? We fill in the blank. I would do this, this, this. I would give this money away, and my life would be wonderful, and I'd buy a nice house in here, and I'd get a nice car, and I'd buy stuff for my family, and I'd give to charity. Right, that's all the list. I wish I could parade up in front of you right now a number of lottery winners who thought the same thing before they won. And then when this sudden rush of income came into their lives, it destroyed them. Their story after story after story. There's a guy named William Post who, a few years ago, he won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. You think, wow, that's a good amount of money. I mean, nowadays, it's like, what, it gets up to $100, $200, $300 million for, like, the, 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 the big ones. But $16.2 million, that could change your life just a little bit, right? And for him, it changed his life dramatically. So he kind of followed the same kind of protocol that most people bought cars and houses and kind of fun stuff to do. In fact, he even invested in a family business that ended up failing. He put his money into all these different things. He actually bought an airplane, and he doesn't even know how to fly, but he just thought he'd buy it because he had the money. And what's crazy is that after one year, after he got that $16.2 million, he was $1 million in debt. He had blown through everything. He was now facing a lawsuit by his girlfriend who wanted some of his money and thought she had a right to it. So he was being sued by his girlfriend, former girlfriend. He also, his brother had hired a hitman to kill him because he wanted the money as well. Now, if William Post was standing here today, he would probably tell you, I wish I never won the lottery. It destroyed his life. Now you're saying, I could probably bring up a lottery winner that probably has made good with their money. But you have to understand, money is something that when we have it, it has the potential to make our lives miserable. And I've said this before, if you don't believe me, then go to Haiti or go to Peru or go to Brazil or go to other countries outside the U.S. and see how much happier people are than we are. When you have nothing, it's easier to be happy with what you have (laughs) because you're not complaining about what you don't have or you think you're supposed to have. So James is saying it can create this misery in our life. Second thing, look at verses two and three, that our wealth, what it does to us, it also causes hoarding. He says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have taken the resource that God blessed you with and you've hung on to it for yourself and you've put more faith in your resource than you have in God who has the ability to meet your needs. Instead of God being God, money becomes our God and we hang on to everything for fear of losing everything. And this is the way our culture lives. We live in this kind of mentality. James is talking about, he said, this is what we hoard. We hoard food and clothing and valuables and all the things that we think that will make us happy. We, and, and, and you hear me, I'm just going from the context of where we live. We are the biggest hoarders of humanity in all the history of the world in our country. We hoard more. And you think, well, I'm not a hoarder because you've seen the TV show Hoarders. 
You're like, you can't, you know, the, the house that you can't even walk through. There's not even a clear path. You can't even see the floor anymore. That's, that's the extreme. But we all hoard in different ways. One of the ways that we hoard in our country is through storage, extra storage. Your garage might be bad enough if it's filled with stuff and you open it up and you can't even get your car in it, right? But when we run out of space in our house or apartment, where do we go? We go and we pay somebody to hang on to our junk for us, Right? Right behind us is a place called public storage. Did you know right now in the United States, there is over 2 billion square feet of storage available just for extra stuff. 2 billion square feet. You know how big that is? That's bigger than the size of our city. In fact, it's almost twice the size of Simi Valley is all of the storage available in the United States right now. Can you imagine, just take our city. In fact, Kim and I were driving in, in we, were, we had just gone out of town for a little bit yesterday and coming back in, coming down Santa Susana Pass, I just looked across Simi Valley and I thought, wow, double that and that's all the storage in the United States. Is that ridiculous? That's, it's, like, it's like 71 square miles of storage in our country it is a $27 billion industry of what? Hanging on to our junk. We pay people to hang on to our junk. And then if you watch the TV show Storage Wars, you lose it when you die, right? <laughs> or you can't pay for people to hold on to your junk, and so you lose it that way. And we become consumed with stuff. And James says, listen, you're hoarding all this resource because you're afraid if you don't have it, you won't be happy, but it's making you miserable and it's costing you more than you realize. Third thing going on is that it also, our wealth, what it does to us is it corrupts us. It causes corruption. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. What is James talking about? He's talking about a business person who's corrupt, who's not paying their workers the wages they deserve, who's finding a way to cut corners to make profit, who doesn't care about other people. It only cares about making money. Now, in our country, we know nothing about that, do we? So here's what's crazy. Go, let's, let's rewind the clock. Let's go back to 2007, 2008. Every single person in our country felt the impact of somebody who was corrupt. Anybody bought a house that lost value? Yeah? Now it's slowly recovering. Anybody lost any money in the stock market back 2007, 2008? You don't have to raise your hand, but we all know. We all did. Anybody lose a good part of your retirement? It's happened. Why did that happen? Oh, it's just bad luck. No. It was called the corruption of banks and greed that loaned to people who couldn't repay and created this bubble that eventually burst, and investors saw the bubble coming and building, and they bet it would fail. And so there are people that literally made billions of dollars of people defaulting on their loans and laughed all the way to the bank. And the rest of us lost jobs, lost homes, lost our retirement. Not because of bad luck, but because what? Corruption. Because money does that to us. And that's what James is warning us about. It's like money's not going to make your life better. It's not the answer to make you happy. It's actually something that will do the opposite. And then going on to the fourth thing James highlights in verse 5. Isn't this uplifting today? This is so wonderful. <laughs> in verse 5, it causes 
selfishness. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. He is being so vivid right now with what he's saying. He's referring to us as cows. That's what he's saying. You're like cattle that is so consumed with eating that they can't see that the butcher's standing over them right now. You're so consumed with consuming and having more wealth and having more things that you can't even see that the end is right in front of you because you're so focused on what you think that you need, the excess in your life. You know what, I, this, I've read this passage so many times and it never really settled in on what James was talking about until we lived in Oregon for a little while. One of the things that people do more prominently in Oregon than they do in California, especially obviously in rural areas, is a lot of people will raise their own cattle, not to sell, but for their own purposes, for their own meat. And I, this was a foreign concept when we moved to Oregon. I didn't know that. You, if I wanted burgers, I'd go to In-N-Out, or if I wanted to go buy a piece of meat, I went to the grocery store. I didn't go out to a field and find a cow. That's what they do sometimes in Oregon. So we had some friends that they would, they would buy some young cows that they would raise for a year or two, and they would feed them, and then they would call the butcher... And he would come out and he would graciously end the life of the cow and then he would slaughter it on site and they'd have meat for a year. This is like strange to me. And so I remember sitting there, I was talking to a friend. In fact, the craziest thing is we went over to dinner to some friend's house one time and, and they, I don't know how they did this, but they named their cows. Not a good idea. When you're going to eat a cow, don't name it. So the first time we went over, they said, yeah, that's Tex and that's Betsy. I don't know what I think. I know it was Tex for sure was the one name. I said, that's great. And then the next time we came over, I said, where's Tex? And guess what Tex was? He was that big old steak on my plate. And I'm like, I can't eat Tex. I saw him. I knew him. It was strange. <laughs> but I remember what I said, so I, he, he said, I said, how does, when the, when the butcher comes out, how does he do this? I said, I mean, how does he get the cow to cooperate? And he goes, oh, it's really easy. In fact, he said, do you want to come? I'm like, no, I don't want to come. I've seen enough of text, okay? He said, no, it's really easy. The butcher comes out, and he throws a little feed on the ground, and the cow comes over, and he starts eating, and then the butcher just takes a 22. That's all it takes. He takes a 22, puts it right to the cow's head, and pulls the trigger. I said, that's it? He goes, yeah, then the cow falls over dead. I'm like, he goes, yeah, and then he slaughters it right on site, and then we have meat. I'm like, he's like smiling as he's telling me this. I'm like, and then I thought, that's exactly what James is talking about. A cow that's so consumed with consuming that it can't even see the butcher with his 22 to its head that's about to die. James uses that illustration to say, listen, you're so focused, you're so selfish with your stuff that you can't even see that the end is coming. And that's why when the end comes, when judgment comes, when Jesus comes, there's going to be a lot of people that are so consumed with consuming they won't even realize he's arrived until it's too late. James is trying to get our attention. He's saying, listen, this is what money will do to you. It'll make you selfish. You won't see people around you. And then the, the fifth thing is that it also causes evil. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You even go to the extent of taking the life of somebody who doesn't deserve death, someone who's innocent, that you'd actually get to that level now, that's pretty extreme, and I'm pretty sure that most of us in this room haven't killed somebody to make profit. But we are a part of a culture and part of a history that did so to people to make profit. I was doing some reading this week, and, and uh, saw, I saw a, a short little segment about a week or so ago on 60 Minutes on, on the slave trade. And it really caught my attention because it's something that's obviously a part of our history 
But just to think through, you know, what, what, what has our nation been a part of? What has the world been a part of historically in terms of slavery? And so when I did some research, I, I found some interesting things that coming out of Africa and all the slaves that were, were literally kidnapped out of their land, out of their homes to be brought to primarily the U.S., but also into Europe, that they estimated there was approximately 12 million people who were brought as slaves over to the U.S. That's the estimate. It's a general number. They don't have exact numbers. So 12 million people that were literally kidnapped and stolen and taken out of their homeland and then transported across the sea to another place. This is the crazy estimate. That's just the ones that survived. The estimates of those who died as a result of slavery, as slavery coming out of Africa is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 million people. People who died all along the way. They died in shipwrecks. They died because they were getting work too hard. They died because of disease. They died. 20 million people. And why, why was slavery slavery? For one reason. Profit. Who ran the plantations in the South and in the U.S. prior to the Civil War and even after the Civil War? Slaves. It was about cotton and tobacco. That's what it was about. It was about profit. In fact, they said before, I read, uh, there was a historian who says before the Civil War, more money was dumped into slavery than railroads and banks and all other businesses combined. It's crazy. So the cycle was what? Slaves were taken from Africa, taken over to the U.S., where they farmed cotton and tobacco, which made its way back to Europe. That was the circle. 20 million lives. Why? For profit. Now, are we guilty of that? No, but it's our history. It's our history. And if that's something that humanity can do to itself, then James' warning is very important for us to hear that we can actually reach the point when we pursue money and resource that we can get to the point where we'll actually take the lives of the innocent to make profit for ourselves. These are strong warnings because we are the nation that has the most resource. So we of all people have to listen the most to what James is saying to us. So what is the antidote to all of this? What's the antidote? It's really simple, but it's hard. It's called generosity. Generosity will starve greed. Generosity will force us off of our selfish agenda. Generosity will, will give us the heart of God for how he wants us to use our resources and will save us from all the things that James just said money can do to you. So three quick things before we'll, we'll dismiss today of what we, we see what our money can do to us, but what do you do with your money? What do you do with your wealth? Three quick things. The first one is this. Give it instead of keeping it. Remember verse 3, James says, what are you doing? You're hoarding. You're hanging on to it. The only way that you get freed from that is when you let go of it. When you let go, when you become generous, when you look to find ways to give instead of hanging on to it. I uh, mentioned this before. My, one of my favorite shows, and right, right in the middle of the season right now on TV, is The Amazing Race. Because it is such an international show, and I love to see, I get to live vicariously through people who get to travel. And so, watching the different episodes, and I always, it's kind of interesting to see the different countries, is also one of the things that I kind of struggle with, is sometimes um, Americans don't understand other cultures, and therefore sometimes they can be unintentionally offensive. 
So there was one episode in particular, they were in Zambia and Africa, and so they, they did all the, in the Amazing Race, each team kind of does different tasks, and then they get to the end, and when they got to the end, the host Phil's standing there, and they come in, and, and they come in, and the ending point of that kind of leg of the race was an orphanage. So there's all these orphans standing around, and then there's, there's a lady who runs the orphanage, and so the whole concept was that each of, each of the team members, each team gets a certain amount of money for each leg of the race, and usually it's in the hundreds of dollars. So they can use that for cab fare or whatever they need to do. And so they get to the end of this leg, and so there's this donation box sitting like right out there, and then here's Phil, the host, and then here's the lady who oversees the orphanage. And so as the teams are coming in, they're all supposed to donate, make a donation to the orphanage. So as each team is coming in, literally, they're like emptying their pockets. Like whatever they had left from the leg, they're like, we're all in. It's not even their money anyway. It was the money that the Amazing Race gave them. And then this one team comes in. <laughs> I can't believe this. The guy pulls out a $20 bill. And this is what he says. He goes, hey, big donation coming. And he's waving it around. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And he drops it. And then Phil looks at him. And he goes, you know what? All the other teams gave all their money. And he stood there. He's like, oh, he looks at his teammate and they start emptying their pockets into the donation box. And it was like, it's that mindset that it's like, and, and I think it's Greg Barshaw who said this. Greg Barshaw oversees Connect 2 and our connection with Haiti. He said, God's not going to judge you on what you give. He's going to judge you on what you keep. Because we can give, but if we're hanging on to a lot more than we're giving and we're always thinking about make sure that my needs are met first and then the leftover goes to people, then we're missing the point. We think we're making the big donation, but what we're doing is really hanging on to what we should be giving away. And when we give it away, it's easier to realize it's not what makes us happy. It's not what needs to control us. Second thing of what we can do with our wealth is to make it instead of manipulating it. So remember, James is saying, you know, that you, you were using your business savvy, you were working the angles, you were lacking integrity to manipulate the situation to make money. You weren't paying the, the workers their wages. He's saying that's, that's not the way that you're supposed to handle resource. That's the opposite. And each one of us, whether it's our personal finance, whether you run a business, or you're involved in some kind of a business in a management capacity, we all have the opportunities presented to us to cut corners to make more money. We all do. There's always those opportunities where you can do something that you think in your own mind, no one will ever know, but I'll reap the benefits on the other side. We'll manipulate the situation to make it work for our benefit instead of what? Doing the right thing. When we were in Ventura, and we, were, uh, we planted the church, and we were, after a few years, we were getting into our own building, and uh, much as we just went through the transition here, and so uh, when we were going into the building process, at the same time I had a friend who was pastoring, and they were going into a building process as well. We sat down, and we were comparing notes, and as we were comparing notes, I started, we started to realize something. I knew that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right, that means we have to go to the city, we have to pull permits, even though I can't stand working with the city, and it's frustrating, and it takes more time, and it takes more money. We need to do this right. So we started the process, and I remember we sat down with them, and I said, hey, have you gone to the city? Have you pulled this permit? Are you doing anything? He goes, what do you mean, go to the city? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, all the work that you're doing on that building, that requires a permit, and there has to be inspection, all that stuff. He goes, ah, he goes, nah. He goes, we got guys in the church, they're going to do it. He goes, the city's not going to worry about it. I'm like, well, you really should be careful, because I said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back to bite. He goes, nah, we'll be all right. I'm like, well, okay. Three months, and they were in their building. Eighteen months for us to get in ours. I was so frustrated and so jealous and honestly so bitter. 
because we had to take the time that the city was going to take. We had to pay for all the fees and all the delays and all the things that should have been done really easily. We had to make sure that we did everything. And so it took us 18 months to get into a building when it took them only three. And I remember we went to their grand opening, and I'm sitting there going, God, this is not fair. We're doing it right, they're not doing it right, and we're still without a building, and look at them. That's, sorry, I'm just being really honest, that's what I was feeling. (laughs) Three years later, we finally were in our building, they were in their building. Somebody from the city just happened to go into their building that they renovated. Happened to be the wrong official from the city, looked around the building and asked the question, is any of this work permitted? Whoopsie. No. Guess what happened? Lost their building. Now, I'll be honest with you, I did not do a happy dance and say, well, it serves you right. I didn't do that. I was sad for my friend. And to this day, I still didn't say I told you so. But I looked back at all the frustration of the 18 months, and I said, Lord, thank you for keeping me from lacking integrity, from taking shortcuts. So that same thing with this building. We invited the mayor (laughs) who was here for our grand opening because we took the time and the frustration, right, Michael Sevalero, and all the hair getting pulled out of working through the process. Why? So now we have a building that's fully permitted and approved by the city, so we don't have to worry. Did it cost us more time? Yeah. Did it cost us more money? Yeah. But we did it the right way. We did it the way that God would honor honor in our lives. And so then the final thing uh, is that what we should do with our wealth is we should invest it instead of spending it. So when James is talking about how there's this hoarding and we hang on to it and then we're selfish, instead of being self-indulgent, we should find ways. And when I say invest, it's not meaning investing in the stock market or investing in my retirement or investing to make more money. It's investing in people. Instead of spending it on ourselves, we should invest it in the people around us that God's calling us to be generous with. And that is something that you and I have to navigate all the time about how we are to respond to the opportunities that we have as individuals, the opportunities that we have through the church, the opportunities that God presents to us all the time of being generous. And one of the ways that we have to do that is before we ever get to the opportunity, we have to make sure that we've placed ourselves in the position that when God opens the door for us to be generous, that we can say yes to it because we haven't spent all our money on ourselves. See, because the tendency is, is that when we get in this cycle of our finances and getting more and buying things and going into debt and using credit cards, that we're never thinking of that moment where we're presented with a need that we want to meet, but we can't because we've leveraged ourselves. We have nothing left. And that's why when we make decisions about how we spend money, we always have to think about what is that going to do to us in the future I've, had, I've sat with friends. In fact, I remember one in Newburgh who sat in front of me and just wept because he looked at his past and he looked at all that he had, in, in, all the debt he had incurred, all the things, the big house that he built up on the hill, and God was calling him to be generous and calling him to mission, and he looked me in the eye and his heart was broken. He said, I can't do it. He has said, I have so much debt, I can't respond to what God's saying. And I said, then you better get out of debt. And it took him three or four years, but he did. He sold one of the nicest houses in Newburgh that he had built himself that was worth so much money and moved to a smaller house and realigned his life so that he could say yes to when God showed up to be generous and to follow God's mission. 
But everything that we do, down to the simplest things, puts us in position to be responsive to God in generosity. A couple weeks ago, Kim was doing the laundry, and right in the middle of this, uh, a wash cycle, our washer died. I mean, like dead, nothing. No, no, no resuscitation possible, it was dead. It gave us 13 good years, but it was toast. So we had to start thinking through, and our, our dryer was getting on the last leg, so it's like, okay, you know, we could call a repairman, and they could sneeze, and $200 later, what's wrong with it? Oh, a $400 fix, then why don't we just take a step back, okay, let's think about buying a new washer and dryer. So we went off shopping one day, and we're looking at things, and I remember the last time that we bought washers and dryers, Kim really wanted to have, like, you know, the, the silver kind of... Uh, uh, finish that's kind of more popular now, not just the typical white, you know, kind of finish. So, um, so, it's, so we're looking at those, and I'm thinking that that's what I kind of told Kim that we could have next time, and so we're looking at the prices, and the white ones are a lot cheaper, and the, you know, the stainless steel ones are like way up in price, and so we're looking at these stainless steel ones, and they have all the bells and whistles. I mean, it's like everything you could possibly want it, like irons and, and dry cleans and everything. It like folds it for you, right? I'm lying, of course. It doesn't exist. But that's, you're like looking at all this and thinking, yeah, this would just be great. I mean, it would be wonderful. And, and then we're looking at this and then I'm looking, I don't want to disappoint Kim and, and she's grappling with this and we're looking at it and finally we're sitting there and we're just talking and I knew I was going to say it, but she said it first. She goes, we can't do this. She goes, if we do this, then we're going to leverage ourselves and we're not going to be in a position to do what God wants us to do. At the same time, Kim and I just sat down to kind of go over our budget again and we're thinking of different areas that we want to be able to give beyond what we're normally giving and outside the church and we have some friends that are in the process of becoming missionaries and being sent off and so we're grappling with supporting them and what, how much can we give to them and so at the same time, it's stainless steel washer and dryers or a mission to reach people with the gospel. Well, if we get stainless steel washer and dryers, sorry, we just spent your support for the next five years. That was the decision. If we said yes to stainless steel, we would say no to mission. And we knew that. And that's the tension that we have to live in when it comes to our resources. If we say yes to this, what are we going to have to say no to tomorrow? Does that mean we have to have a poverty mentality? No, but it means that sometimes we think we've convinced ourselves, I really need this, and God's saying, no, you just want it. It's not a need. And if we can realize that, if we can take a step back and say, you know what, this will work. This is functional. This is appropriate. Why? Now I'm in a position so I can extend generosity and not be leveraged and owned by my wealth, but I can use it as a resource for God's kingdom. See, that's what will free us from the six verses of warnings that James just gave us. We don't have to worry about that. What if we live generously with the resource that God has blessed us with? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for James again. We thank you for, even though, Lord, his words are very pointed and very difficult to embrace, I thank you that we as Americans who have been blessed by you, who have experienced, Lord, the resources that you have allowed us to have, but Lord, we know with that resource comes the responsibility of how we handle what you've given us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would not allow the, the gift that we've received to be something that would corrupt us, something that would change us, something that would own us, something that would control us. 
but Lord, it would be something that would actually be releasing to us to be able to extend generosity to all areas of those around us, Lord, whether it be locally or globally. Maybe it's the person, Lord, that we encounter on the street. Maybe it's the family that's struggling financially and just needs some help. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to position ourselves so that when we have the opportunity, we can always say yes. That we never have to wait, that we never have to hesitate, but we can always be all in when it comes to the resource that you have blessed us with in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.